Welcome to Clock Out, the Vicarious Life Podcast. This is for the mavericks in the world who are on a mission to obtain freedom. What is freedom? We're about to find out. I'm your host, Tracy Miller, a free-spirited entrepreneur who has been chasing freedom her entire life. Beside me is my co-host, Jackie Asel, the anchor who keeps me grounded. Thanks for joining us. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Clock Out, The Vicarious Life. Today, I've got Michael Cohan, and he is a life coach, and he's the owner and the founder of the Elevate Life Project. He specializes in helping folks to aim higher and elevate their lives, and he is also the host of Elevate Life Project podcast. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me be a guest host. Let's get some knowledge going. Yes, yes, absolutely, which is why I asked you to be on my show. You seem to be a wealth of knowledge on one of my favorite topics. We're going to laugh. That's why we just hit that button. <laughs> we are going to laugh today. We are going to have some fun, and we're going to learn about purpose. We're going to learn about all the different lessons that you have to offer, as well as tips and advice that you talk with your clients about. So with that, Michael. Yeah, let's just roll it. Yeah, give me a little bit of background. How did you become a life coach? Tell me about it. Well, I always like to say that I'm an actual life coach and it's not my hobby. What I mean by that is I actually make a living coaching. I see on average between 50 and 60 clients a month. I charge between 100 and $130 an hour. I see clients typically twice a month. So I'm making well over six figures coaching and I'm not famous. I don't have a huge Instagram following. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm not running a you know million-dollar podcast. Anybody can actually make a living coaching if they're willing to do the work. Too many people get into coaching, and they don't know how to build a business, and they don't know how to get clients. So they're not actual life coaches. They're trying to be a life coach but they don't know how to make a living at it. So that's why I want to clarify that I'm an actual, real, full-time, the only thing I do, coach. Got it. You are a real-life coach. <laughs> I love that. How did I get – thank you. How did I get into coaching? So I guess you can – it can start with – I'll give you a little narrative, a little story, so everyone buckle up, and we'll have a moral, I promise. <laughs> when I was 22 years old, I just graduated from college and I was in grad school at Rutgers. I was getting my master's in psychology with the goal of becoming, getting my PhD in psychology to become a therapist. 20 years ago, in order to be a counselor, a therapist, you had to have your PhD, unlike today where all you need to get is a master's in clinical therapy. Mm. I'm living in New York City. I'm working for a nonprofit organization called Catholic Charity, doing social work for a uh, troubled kid, and all along comes a nice, fall, crisp day, and two planes fly into a building, mm -hmm. and my life changed. Yes. And I was in New York City that day, and I remember running down uh, Broadway as the two towers were collapsing. And I lost a few friends that day, and I just sort of kind of lost my way. Mm. And I really just kind of like stopped paying attention. I dropped out of school and I didn't really know what to do with my life. And my parents loved me and were like, get a job. And the job I got 
was in New York City, and I started working in New York City, and I got a job in corporate, and I didn't really like what I was doing for a living. Mm. I liked the hard work. I liked the energy. I liked the pressure, but I did not like what I did for a living. And so I spent 10 to 12 years of my life, timeline's a little confusing, working my ass off, starting off in sales, selling cell phones for Verizon Wireless, Mm -hmm. then getting a job in marketing over at Ogilvy and Mather, then taking that background and getting a job in marketing for a real estate investment trust. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I'm 32 years old. I'm making $250,000 a year. I have a great brownstone apartment in New York City. I'm overlooking a park. I'm, you know, on paper, I look like I had everything. Like, imagine being 32 years old, making a quarter million dollars a year, living in New York City, and having an expense account. Yeah. Yep. That's top of the good. world. Yeah. What happened? And I looked in. I bet I would. Well, I looked in the mirror, and I didn't like what I saw back. I wasn't the smartest person. I wasn't the smartest person. I had people that I would work with and who would work for me with MBAs from Harvard, Yale. I had people that had PhDs in finance that would work for me. I wasn't the smartest person. I was just the hardest worker. Mm. And I would outwork anybody. And I did that through drugs and alcohol. I, 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 this is 10 years ago before they had the, the, uh, the uh, COVID, uh, what's it, the oxycodone oh, pandemic. Sure. So yeah. I had, pres- yeah, I had three doctors prescribe anti-anxiety medicine to me for Xanax. I had mm. three doctors give me back pain for Vicodin. I had three doctors give me prescriptions, the Adderall. Wow. And I had, so, yeah. So every day I did Vicodin, every day I did Adderall. I worked 10, I, like a slow day for me was 10 hours. I would work 12, 14 hours a day. Mm. And how did I justify my life? I bought shit I did not need. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I, and I spent money that I did not have. Sure. And at 32 years old, I looked in the mirror and said, who is this guy? I did not like what I looked back at me. And so I started going on this, like, you know, like it was like that dark night of the soul. Like I was just like pills, drugs. Who is this person? I did not like the person looking back at me. And I was like, God, I want change. I want change. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't remember who I was from 10, 10 years ago, but I wanted change. So I went on a journey. I started studying spirituality. I studied Hinduism. I studied Judaism. I studied Christianity. I started taking yoga. Mm-hmm. And here's the moment where I decided to take a leap. I'm sitting in a workshop and I'm listening to this, this motivational speaker slash yoga teacher who just seemed to have it all. And this student next to me asked the question of, you seem to have the life that I want how do I do that? Mm. And the lecturer responded, you're not happy right now. I can see that. Change is going to be unpleasant and you're not going to be happy either. Sure. But if you work hard enough through that change, you might get to a place where you're finally going to be happy. Mm. But it's not going to be forever either. But at least you'll be somewhere better than where you are now. Yes. So if you're unhappy now and, you, and change is going to make you unhappy, What's the difference? Get started. Sure. And that began my journey to, from quitting my corporate job to teaching yoga 
to realizing what my true purpose was, which is what I was in school for 15 years beforehand to help people where I decided to become a life coach. Mm, I love it. That is, that is fantastic. And I feel like the, I, I call it the hustle culture, you know, right now the hustle culture of go, go, go to the next best thing, to the next big thing, to the next, and you just keep hustling after the status, the prestige, the, the things, the cars, all the stuff. And then you realize when you're in that moment that then you have to maintain that image through more stuff. And it, it's just a vicious cycle. And like you said, you're, you're hustling, you're going nonstop, you're working every day, all day. And w- when you look in the mirror, you're, you're, you're self-medicating in so many different ways that there's just no substance left. And I, I, I wonder how many people continue that path all the way through because they never have that spirituality component that really settles them into understanding why they're doing what they're doing and how they can change it. So um, hats off to you. That's amazing. Um, and, and it's really awesome that you're teaching that now so that others can move into the same path if they so choose. Um, with that, will you tell me what is, okay, let's, let's go with the toxic self-help versus the life journey of self-discovery that you talk about. I I mean, self-help is everywhere. It's such a commercialized field. How do you differentiate between the two and how do you serve in the correct capacity? Well, I can look at my story as a perfect example of toxic self-help, right? What is the nuggets of the life lesson that so many people in our industry use and and so many people take away right your nine to five job is bad don't have a nine to five job find your purpose and you'll never work a day in your life Mm. always be happy and if you're not happy something's wrong with you Mm. and if you're not living your best life then there's something that you need to change is all toxic self-help that's the biggest lesson that i teach every one of my clients that's not the mission in life is for you to figure out your, your purpose and that purpose has to be your career or somehow you're miserable or if you want to be wealthy, you have to quit your job. There are so many wealthy people out there that have nine to five jobs that did not get born with wealth. There are so many people out there that have nine to five jobs that like what they do for a living and they're not doing anything glamorous. They're lawyers, they're accountants, they're office clerks. Sure. It, you have, so toxic self-help is telling you that, that somehow your life is wrong and there's nothing wrong with you. That is, it's like you are a unique person yeah. in this world and your narrative makes you unique, but your problems are not unique mm. and nothing is wrong. And toxic health, self-help says that whatever problems you have, that's what's wrong with you versus Self, like positive, like self-help says that you are a whole person. You have things in your life that you like about yourself, things about who you are as a person. Mm. And you want to be, you want to practice gratitude for those things. And you want to be aware of those things. So you put your life in that, that, that lens. But you want to look at the things that you don't like about yourself, not as something that you need to get rid of, sure. but as a way for growth, mm. right? If you don't like your job, that doesn't mean you have to find, you have to have the job that you love. You just need to look at your job as a way for you to find fulfillment somewhere else. Sure. 
Sure. Not everybody's meant to have their dream job. Not everybody is meant to, to drive a fancy car. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is meant to be happy all the time. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to have fulfillment. What that means for you is right. different from what it means for me. Sure. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the difference between self-help and toxicity. Yeah, that's, I like that. That's, that's really that that's a gem there. I, I don't know how often you have people that are just preaching. Like you said, it's the way, like it, like, like you said, it's all or nothing. If you are still working the nine to five, you, you know, you haven't figured it out. You, you know, you're a slave to whatever. And, and, and yeah, I mean, somebody that is working a nine to five might be thoroughly happy and enjoy it because maybe it gives them the time. Maybe it's low stress. Maybe it gives them the time to go home and and uh, have a structure where they can do what they really love, which is spending time with their family or traveling and the, you know, knowing that they've got every weekend, et cetera. Some people gardening. Yes. Gardening, anything. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's others out there that, that just, they don't want to be business owners. They don't want, they don't even, they don't want to be rich. They don't want to be wealthy that they don't value that. I mean, it, I, my, my biggest realization as of to this day is just looking at what you, like you said, individually really value in life and building the parts of your life that you can at that moment around those values. Cause we can't have it all, all of the time. Like you said, I mean, you, your, your job, you might have a great fulfillment there, but something in your, your personal life falls apart a little bit. I mean, this, this unrealistic expectation that everything has to be perfect and put together and you have to do it like everybody else is doing it. It's like, no, build your life around your own value system with what you have available to you at that time, realistically. So yeah, nothing drives me nuts than the idea of work-life balance. Yes. You want to know how I have, like, like yes, technically, I have work-life balance now. You want to know why? Mm. I spent 10 years building this coaching business and working my ass off yeah. 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So now, yes, now, today, I get to work full-time from home. I haven't moved my car in four days. <laughs> I, I get to take a nap every afternoon for 45 minutes. Sure. I have I, I have an I have a Peloton in my house. Yeah. Yes, I get to ride that every day. I get to make lunch every day, and I get to eat cooked food every day in my kitchen. I have that because I work my ass off for it, right. not because I, I was seeking work life balance. I built work life balance for me. Yeah. And too many people think, oh, just because you have a job, you don't have work life balance. Right. People have work life balance. Because they have this idea that they have a job to buy stuff. Mm. And people that are successful in life have a different mindset. We, we, we have a job or we have a career and we work to acquire assets, to mm. acquire wealth. Yes. We don't, we, like so many people I, I know drive luxury cars yep. that they cannot afford. And I have no desire like, to drive a luxury car. Maybe one day when I no longer have to save for retirement sure. and I no longer have to pay, have a mortgage, then maybe I'll drive a, you know, fully loaded Ford Bronco with a hatchback. Yeah. But it's not, I'm not working to buy that because then I'll, and because then I'll never have that balance. In life. Yeah. You're a slave. And that's it. the difference. Yeah. 
Absolutely. We, my, I'll be driving with my, my daughters. I've got teenagers, uh, 18-year-old, 20-year-old, and a 13-year-old. So I'll be cruising around, and the 13 and the 18-year-old will say, they'll be talking about, oh, yeah, this is where the rich kids live. And we have to have those talks, you know, because they're young and they're under the impression of what society has taught them is that you're rich if you have a nice house. You're rich if you have this bling bling car. And it's like, no, honey, um, those people are not always rich. A lot of the times those people are up to their ears in debt and they're high income earners. That doesn't mean that they're wealthy. It's two different things when you break down the difference between, yeah, high income, but you're also a slave because you can't not work to maintain that status, to maintain those payments, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, yeah, the, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's an image <laughs> that, uh, you know how many million dollar life coaches that I know that nobody's ever heard of that doesn't, they're not on stage as keynote speakers making $50,000. Mm-hmm. They run private, small from home coaching practices. Mm-hmm. And they make, they're, they're worth millions of dollars mm-hmm. because they work yep. and to acquire money because they know where their money goes and they take that money that they earn and they use a portion of that to buy assets. The idea, the, the, the thing that drives me nuts, create passive income. Yeah. There, there's only, there is no such thing as passive income except for one thing. Work really hard, save a bunch of money, throw it in the bank and collect interest on that money. Right. That is passive income. Sure. That's it. Yeah. Even if you work really hard and you buy real estate, you still have to work to own when you're a landlord. That's not passive income. Yeah. Right. You have to work. Yeah. And too many people don't want to do that today. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. It's, it's a, uh... It's very interesting, and it's all the the Instagram inspirers, the TikTokers that, yeah, they just, they they create this unrealistic expectation of what life looks like for for everybody. And, you know, like I said, I've got teenagers, I've got kids that are entering the workforce, and it is incredible how they think that they can just basically just influence or get online and and be rich. It's like, man, there is so much more that goes into it, and and before you've even got the business that you're, that you're pouring your heart and soul and all of your, your time and effort into, you've got to have the social skills that go into that. And that is for most people is a 10, 20 year journey to be able to build up the, just the, the emotional intelligence, the resiliency, the ability to have conversations with people. And, um, it's, it's pretty crazy. I'll be interested to see where we're at in 20 years. Maybe we'll both be wrong. Maybe, (laughs) maybe the influencers will never work. I don't know. No, no. Look, there. So there. So I mean, we're on the topic of wealth right now, which is something that people are always interested in. But uh, we'll, we're going to tie it into information, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. There are three ways. There's three forms of income, in a sense. Mm-hmm. There's the climbers, mm-hmm. the dreamers, and the savant. The climber is the person that gets a job and climbs up a corporate ladder with the goal of making, you know, $200,000 a year, $100,000 a year to a million dollars a year to $50 million a year. Mm-hmm. Then there's the dreamer, the person that has the dream and idea to start a business. I, and then there's the savant, the, the, and that's con- including the Instagram influencer, the YouTuber, the person on stage, the comedian, the actor, the musician. Mm-hmm. We, every one of us falls into one of those categories. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. 
it's what you do in that category that matters. How many people you know that are servants? Where 10 years ago, how many of them are broke today? Sure. How many climbers you know that make $200,000, $300,000 a year, like we were talking about, that have no money? Oh, yeah. How many dreamers? How many dreamers? Yeah. Have no, right? It's yeah. what you do with it, right? And that's the biggest thing that we today, the biggest challenge that we have, have as a culture mm-hmm. is to be able to use that information and filter out the information that is real versus the information that has no value. Sure. We have to learn to peel back the layers of the people that we see that are preaching these like these goes back to the original, like the, the toxic, toxic self-help and the missing, the disinformation and the misinformation and the, and telling us that something's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. We have to begin to discern that information and filter it. That's the big obstacle to that. That's a, that's a drop the mic moment. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I, for the sake of respecting your time, we're going to shift here because I want to make sure we get through some of these big topics. Talk to me mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. because, okay, so that, that's the career, that's the finances. What I'm really passionate about as of late is peace and having true joy in life. And I don't mean happiness like, oh, something big mm-hmm. is happening in my life. I mean like content, peaceful, just joy. Talk to me about what mindfulness is and how you work with people to obtain that or to understand it. All right. So mindfulness is what we in the industry use as a way to talk to people that have no religion or spiritual and or no sense of religion and to bring spirituality into coaching. To not frighten the type A corporate person who's like, give me the facts, give me the quant data to prove to me, to, to show me that what you're trying to have me do makes sense, mm. right? It's the idea that and the basic simple definition of mindfulness is really simple. It's really black and white. It's the idea that your environment affects your thoughts and emotions and your thoughts and emotions affect your environment. But what's that really mean, right? Mm-hmm. And you go deeper and you pull back that layer. It means that you're not this mind. You're not this body. Mm-hmm. You're something divine. Your spirit, your source. You're, you're, you're infinite. And it's to understand that. That is what mindfulness is about teaching you. And we use that word to tap into those areas for individuals through mm-hmm. concepts like emotional intelligence, mm-hmm. to non-attachment, mm-hmm. fear, so that it, it is a no longer a frightening topic for CEOs, mm-hmm. lawyers, doctors, scientists, people that have no concept of spirituality. Interesting. That is the first time I have ever heard it defined that way, and that is brilliant. That is so brilliant because that that's actually my second question. It leads perfectly into it, which um, we can kind of discuss these both together. But I was just going to ask you, like, what percentage of your clients or people that you interact with on a, a day-to-day have no spiritual connection or or, are not awake. And you basically just told me that (laughs) you really good life coaches, real life coaches 
have already identified that the people that don't have that in their life need to be taught mindfulness because they don't, you can't just jump into talking about spiritual components because they haven't identified. Is that kind of what you just said? Correct. Wow. Yes, that's why, that's why we use it. It's a way to bring in spiritual components. It's a way to bring in like the ideas, like, 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 like a basic component of spirituality. What is the root? What is the one absolute truth in this world? There's only one. The one truth. um, Love. I don't, I don't know. Death. Death. Okay. The one absolute truth in this world is your, you, me, and everybody else in this world is going to die. Okay. We're yeah. all going to die. Yes. Right? What is the what is the absolute illusion in this world? The illusion is <laughs> we know it. we're going to die, but we don't think it's going to happen to us. It, because yes. if we knew we were going to die, right? And we know that one day we're going to leave this body and we're going to go somewhere else, mm-hmm. would we do the things that we do to other people no. and other things? No. Right. It's crazy, isn't right. it? Right. <laughs> right. So that so so the absolute truth in this world is that we are going to die. Yes. And the absolute illusion is we don't think it's going to happen to us. Yes. So what does that what does that mean for us then as humans? That means that we live in a world, and this is mindfulness, mm-hmm. that is constantly changing, because death equals change. Change is always happening to us. Think about the world. Think about like p- anything that you have in this world. It is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Everything in this world changes. But we think that we are not going to die. Yeah. And because of that, we are afraid of change. So we cling to things mm-hmm. that cause us suffering. Yes. Right. Yes. Every, if we're going to die, and, right, and everything's going to change, then pain is a part of life. Mm-hmm. There's nothing we can do about it. What causes us to suffer is we attach ourselves to things yes. that are going to change, yes. which means that we as humans live like animals. Right. Mm-hmm. We're not much different than an, a wild creature. We live a life to avoid pain and seek pleasure. Mm-hmm. Work all day, I'm in pain, mm-hmm. get a paycheck, go out and buy things. Pleasure. pleasure. <laughs> right? Yes. Mindfulness teaches us those fundamental principles. Yes. That you're going to die one day, that everything in this life is going to change, that pain is a part of life, that everybody goes through pain that it isn't an enemy for you, right. that it's part of your existence so that you then begin to let go of the things that you're trying to hold on to when they happen so you can begin to adapt, mm-hmm. right? So a perfect example that we're still coming out of, COVID, yeah. right? I look, COVID, like those people that were able to adapt, thrived. The people that were like, oh, I don't have to go into the office anymore. I work from home. Great, thrived. I'm not attached. Yeah. Right. Everybody else panicked and went through suffering because they were attached to a world that was changing. Mm-hmm. Mindfulness teaches you to let go of those, those things in this world. Interesting. Very interesting. That's okay. So 
okay, so then where's, where, what, what do you do to teach, I mean, just a basic level, so then what do you do to teach people how to be content and how to find joy and peace? I mean, because that whole talk right there can leave some people depressed thinking, oh, I'm just going to die. So where do they find, where do you help people find the joy, the true joy, like the truthful, real joy in life in place of attaching to things? One, I teach them not to be afraid of dying, mm-hmm. that it's a part of life. So so why be depressed about it? It's going to happen. Sure. So the quality of a person isn't the things they have. The quality of a person is the life that they live, not through if everything good happens to them. Right. It's what they do when they have obstacles. That's the sure. quality of a person, right? Mm-hmm. That what you do when the you know you hit the wall, your business falls apart. Your your marriage is struggling. Your 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 you know some sort of hardship. Mm-hmm. Your quality of life is: Are you willing to recognize your mistakes, mm-hmm. make the necessary changes, and persevere? So, what's wrong with that fear? How do we get there? Is by teaching emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right? Emotional intelligence is basically understanding that there's basically five components to emotional intelligence. Self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. Self-awareness and self-regulation are the two main components of emotional intelligence. Basically, what that is understanding is that most people react rather than respond. Yes. So what is the difference between reacting and responding? reacting is when you experience an emotion and if it's a positive emotion like happy you label it as good and when you experience a negative emotion like fear sadness uh stress mm-hmm. and you label it label it bad and you react so emotion behavior in mindfulness we teach you that all emotions are both good and balanced. They are all valid. They all serve a purpose to give you the information to guide your thinking on the environment that you're experiencing to then use that information to think, to come up with the best course of behavior for the best outcome that you would like in a situation. So that we are not attached to good emotions or bad emotions. When we are angry, we don't say in mindfulness, I'm angry. We right. say, I'm experiencing anger right now. Right. This is why I think I'm angry. This is my course. Of, this is what I'm going to do to, re- to react to why I'm angry. And this is the solution or, or, or behavior to have the best course of action so I succeed in life. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because we recognize that the emotions that we experience aren't who we are. No. They're the, the things that we're experiencing at that time. And they're temporary and they flow through you and they're, they're not you. Yes, they're disconnected. It's, you're not attached to them. Right. So when I have a client get on the phone with me and, they say, and I ask them, you know, like, you know, I, I do like an assessment and they'll say, I'm angry all the time. And I'll say you're, and I'll say you're angry all the time because you identify yourself as an angry person by saying you're angry all the time. What you are is experiencing anger all the time. Mm. 
And what we want to ask then is, why are you experiencing angry or anger all the time? Sure. And then we begin to discern it. We don't think of it as a negative. We think of it as data. Data, yeah, that makes sense. Break it down to how they're perceiving things, et cetera, et cetera. And asking the question, why? Mm -hmm. And then trying to come up with a solution of what to do about it. Whether it's they're angry all the time at work because they don't have systems in place to get rid of the things that they no longer do. Like That's a classic example for a lot of individuals when they start companies. They build their company up to a point where they're making a good living, and but they and they're angry because they're still dealing with customer service issues because they haven't yet let go of that part of their business because sure. they're afraid they're the only ones could handle it better, I right? See. So yes. they walk around angry all the time, <laughs> and you have to ask that question: Why? Sure. Fascinating. You are very good at what you do. That is apparent. <laughs> um, just want to take a shift here before we start to wrap this up. I understand that you, a lot of what you're you're referring to is what I've been learning and reading about with Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So where, mm-hmm. and, and one of my other guests that I talked to had asked me at that time that I was very new at reading about Buddhism. And he had said, you know, what, what, who, who are you reading? Is it, you know, is it Eastern? Is it Western? Etc. And I, I was, I was a little taken back. I'm like, I don't understand what he's asking me. But now I understand that there is a big difference between Eastern and and uh, Western philosophy. Will you? I'll disagree with you on that. You'll disagree. Okay, explain. Because I'm new. Teach so, me. I, so I'll, I will disagree with that. There is no difference. If you, this, I think that's one of the big problems that we have in this world, right? Mm-hmm. That it's, and it goes to tribalism, right? We have too many people that think like, oh, there's a difference between Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. Eastern philosophy is the good philosophy. Sure. And it's the, it's, the, it's the mystic one with Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's all about peace. And the Western philosophy is the bad one because it's all about, you know, dominance and, you know, and, and you know, political hierarchy. Sure. Right? Yep. Where do you think the root of psychology, which is the Western philosophy and Western practice, comes from eastern philosophy (laughs) yeah yeah sigmund freud and and carl jung got influenced from the bhagavad gita which is a hindu text they were christian and jewish people in europe that got access to hindu and eastern philosophy through the bhagavad gita which is a sacred text Mm -hmm. and they took the information on that and applied it to a psychological method Right. Mm-hmm. So, right. Henry David Thoreau. Yeah. You're an, he's an American icon that we get taught in history when you're in, eight, I think, eighth grade in America. Sure. Right. On Walden Pond. Where do you think Henry David Thoreau got his influence for take, re- removing himself from the world and moving out to Walden Pond to become an ascetic monk? Eastern philosophy, the old world. <laughs> yes. He received a book from someone on what is called the Mahabharata. And he read the Mahabharata. Somehow he got an English translation of it. And he got his inspiration to go and become an aesthetic monk from the Mahabharata. Okay. When I was studying, when I was studying yoga, I mean, when I was really, when I mean by studying yoga, I had a shaved head. I wore monk robes. 
-hmm. and I practice two hours of yoga in the morning, two hours of yoga at night, meditate for two hours every day. That's mm -hmm. all I did. Okay. And I, and I, my guru, my teacher, his name is His Holiness Radhanath Swami. He's this big deal Swami. He wrote the book, A Journey Home. And he tells the story of when he was in the 1960s and 1970s, he left the United States and went to, to Europe and hitchhiked from Europe to India. Mm. When he was in India, he was in a sacred area of India called Vrindavan. Vrindavan is a sacred place for a lot of Hindus. It's the birthplace of Krishna and Radha, which are God and goddess in human form. Okay. In the Hindu religion. And he's on the banks of the river. And he's like, I'm in this beautiful, sacred, holy place. And he's meditating. And this monk walks over to him and says, I've been holding this for you for the last 10 years. And he hands him a prayer book. And it's wrapped up and wrapped up. And he's shaking. He's like, oh, my God. I made it to India. I'm going to get this sacred text of Hindu faith, religion, and mysticism. And he's shaking and he's so excited. Uh -huh. And he opens it up. What is what did what was in there? I don't know. Tell me. <laughs> Teachings of Saint Francis. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Crazy. So it's right. So it sounds to me like. There's a little bit of ego involved with the, the just the whole idea of fighting over Eastern versus Western. I mean, how, why, why do we have that language out there or that, that barrier, that division? Is it just human nature or what do you think is the root of that? I think that, I think in America, I can only speak for America, in American, because that's who you're speaking to. Mm -hmm. We as Americans ha look at the, religious hierarchy and the religious institutions in America and feel portrayed, mm. right? A lot of religion in, in, you know, European culture is very much foundation in Europe mm. translated over into America that is based very much culturally in a monarchy system, right? Sure. Suppression, yeah. right? Suppression rules. And that gets got that is part of the religion that we grew up in and culturally for generations. Mm. So as people who want to break free from the culture society that they feel is no longer serving them and they find answers in another religion or another text, mm. they only see the good in that because they're not yes. experiencing the same patriarchal hierarchy that exist in other religions. They only see the good part. They only see the, the kumbaya, the yoga, right? They don't realize that they have the same hierarchy. They have the same sort of oppression that Western religions have. So then they say, oh, the Eastern religion is good. Sure. The Western religion is bad. Both are good and both are bad. Both have their valid teachings and both have their atrocities. We can't discard the atrocities and discard the wisdoms also. We have to understand that 
it's it's like it's called I I think it's the word is called presentism, right? I I take I I judge the people from the past mm. on the standards of the present. Interesting. So I'm judging the history of the Judeo-Christian patriarchal monarchical society that it comes from on today's modern standards and deeming it bad. Mm. And I'm looking at the Eastern religion and the Eastern and the Eastern standards that have been imported into the America in the 1960s and 70s in the counterculture through the counterculture movement mm. that is much more accepting as good because it aligns with my present worldview better. So anything from that East, East, Christ, uh, Judeo-Christian is bad, and anything from Hinduism is good. And I studied both, mm. and I felt liberated in both, mm -hmm. and I felt oppressed in both. Interesting. That is very helpful. I'm going to continue to uh, let that sit with all of my new learning on the same thing, learning about all these different uh, different kinds of religions that are out there, and it that's very well said. I appreciate that so much. Um, we're going to start wrapping this up a little bit. I just wanted to ask, what is one tip or suggestion that you as a real life coach would give to listeners to start today if they want to begin the process of, of changing their life in any capacity and one capacity for the better, where would you tell them to start? Be mindful of what you do when you wake up in the morning. Mm. It is not what time you wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. It's what you do with your morning that matters. Too many authors and too many people tell you that in order to live your best life, you need to be up at 5 a.m. to start your day. <laughs> That's not necessarily true for you if you're working till 9 o'clock at night. Sure. If you're working till 9 o'clock at night because of your job, you're not getting up at 5 a.m. It's, so if you want to change your life, pick one thing that you want to do in the morning before you check your phone, before you start your day, before you turn on the TV, before you wake up your kids, before you do anything. Mm -hmm. Whether that's sitting in bed and reading a book for 10 minutes mm -hmm. or sitting in meditation before, or listening to a podcast on personal growth, pick one thing in the morning. Mm -hmm. one thing and start your day with that do that for 30 days one thing mm -hmm. and if you can keep that up for 30 days then add another thing mm -hmm. and work towards having an hour for yourself in the morning because if you take care of your morning your morning will take care of the rest of your life I love that that is absolutely dynamite advice 100% can relate to that as well um, and it, it does, it just changes your outlet. You set your day with intention. And, and I, I specifically, I read for a little bit. And then when I'm taking a shower, when I actually start getting ready, that's when I listen to podcasts. Those days where mm -hmm. I miss either or, or both of those activities, the day runs me. I, I, I don't mm -hmm. go into it with intention and a, and a positive. It's kind of like uh, starting your day with gratitude then I, you know, if I actually sit and really reflect on all the things that I'm super grateful for, the rest of my day, I notice all of those things. And that's really what 
I observe are more of those things. It's the same with if I listen to a good podcast that's this. If I listen to this information, I would be very aware of my emotions throughout the day. I would be cognizant and it would be more of an intentional day. Is that the why? Is that a little bit kind of why you recommend that or is there something else or something more? I think we live in a state of overwhelm, right? We live in it in a world of weapons of mass distraction. It goes back to the original conversation we're having where it's like Instagram, TikTok, mm-hmm. Facebook, social media, Snapchat, YouTube, whatever information. We are constantly bombarded with information. Yes. Now we also have responsibilities because, you know, we have to work, we have to pay our bills. And then a lot, most of us at some point in life have kids. Mm-hmm. So we wake up in the morning, we go all day, we come home, we eat dinner, we watch a little TV and go to bed. Yep. And then we look up and five years have passed and we went, what the hell has happened? Yeah. If we allow that little bit of pause in the morning, mm-hmm. a little space for contemplation, just to be aware, yeah. that changes the course of our life. That's when we begin to make changes to our lives. For the better. Because at the end of the day, I don't care if you're a night owl or a morning owl, you're tired. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's why it's best to do it in the morning. It's yeah. not like, oh, you have to get up at eight five AM to be successful. I know plenty of successful people that don't get out of bed until ten o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Right? Winston Churchill was famous for it. Winston Churchill was a night owl. He didn't wake up in like eleven AM for Winston Churchill was early mm. <laughs> right and he was like he was like one of the, he's one of the most prolific prime ministers in england mm. english society like he's famous like we still remember him mm-hmm. it's what you do in the morning yeah right he winston churchill would wake up in the morning and yeah he would drink but he would also read the papers he would di- write notes he would dictate to to people he would read articles he would he would meet with staff before he started his day, that's what he did. That's why he was so successful. It's, it's that you do things in the morning to make yourself better. You will then gain momentum to do other things. Solid advice. I love it. Thank you so much. This has been like just a wealth of information. I'm very, very grateful. Um, You put a lot of, just for myself on my own learning, you've put a lot of pieces together for me. So I'm really looking forward to going back and doing some more individual research on some of these things that you've talked about. Where can my guest find more of you? Tell me a little bit about where we can get your podcast, what it's about, where you're at online, if they want to look up and get maybe some individual coaching with you. Everybody, all you have to do is just go to my website, elevatelifeproject.com. You'll see my coaching articles. You'll see my coaching videos. You can listen to my little mini coaching podcast where I give actionable advice twice a week. And you can sign up for my new newsletter. That's the best place to find it. Perfect. Sweet and simple. Couldn't ask for more. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate it again. And I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. And thank you. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for letting me be a guest. Yes, my pleasure.